John chapter 2 is where we will be tonight. And if you do not have a Bible, it's page 977 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 2, we're going to read the first 11 verses. I'd like to read them with you and then I'll pray. So John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful tonight that, that we can read of Jesus in the Gospels and that we see him in a unique setting at a wedding. So God, as we look at this passage tonight, we ask that you would help us to learn about Jesus about who he is, about what his life is all about, and what he came to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, this is a unique setting that we find Jesus in. This is the only gospel of the four where we see Jesus at a wedding. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all do not conclude this story. John is the only one who includes this story, and so we see Jesus at a wedding, which is a unique setting, and there's a, there's a unique problem at this wedding. What happens at the wedding is, is typically weddings in the first century like this would be about a week long. And so it's a, it's a long celebration, and the whole time it's up to the bridegroom to provide food and drink and beverage for all the people who are in attendance. And so what's happening is, is at this wedding, they run out of wine. And so there's a problem. To run out of wine at your own wedding would be sort of an embarrassment for you. And my, my wife and I kind of know this feeling a little bit. Now, obviously, weddings are different. Here in the United States, they just last for a couple of hours. But my wife and I got married in 2011, and we, uh, we found a small little country church down in the, on the, the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. And so we had our wedding, and it was a small ceremony uh, in a small church, and then our, our reception was just a couple miles down the road. And so we're at the church doing the photos with the wedding party and all this with the photographer. And, you know, you, typically that takes about an hour or so. So after that, we head to the reception place where all of our guests had been there. Uh, they were supposed to be eating and, and waiting for us to arrive. So we get there. And before we even walk in the door, we're greeted by Samantha's mom, my mother-in-law. And she proceeds to tell us that the caterers never showed up. They apparently got the time wrong and thought they were supposed to be there at like 5.30 in the evening, and it's like 2 o'clock at this point. So they are hightailing it, you know, loading up their vans or whatever and trying to get to this reception so that they can provide some sort of food. But in the meantime, we're all sitting there like, well, what do we do? You know, like there's, there's no food. The whole point was for everybody to be eating and drinking 
uh, while they're waiting on us. And obviously that didn't happen. And, and that was quite an embarrassment. You know, obviously it wasn't our fault, but we felt like it's, it's our responsibility to you know, provide a good time uh, so, so people can celebrate our wedding with us. So I kind of understand the situation a little bit. And so back to the story here in John, we have the mother of Jesus is at the wedding. And then also, if you look at verse 12, which uh, we're not really going to talk about much, but it says that Jesus was with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. So it seems like the whole family, Jesus' entire family was actually at this wedding, which leads us to believe that this possibly could have been a wedding for someone closely related to them uh, or some a very close friend. And so we see Jesus' mother now is presenting this issue or bringing this issue before Jesus. So let's look at what she says. So on the third day, there's a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now the first point, the first thing I want us to focus on is Jesus' response to his mother. So now they're at a wedding, they run out of wine, and Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and makes this known. And look at Jesus' response. In verse 4, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So I think there's significance in this phrase, my hour has not yet come. John uses this phrase a lot throughout his gospel. And every time he's talking about when Jesus dies on the cross. That's when we see, finally, John is starting to say, this is the hour. The hour is at hand. And that's when Jesus is being turned over, he's being beaten, he's being crucified. That's the hour that John is talking about in his gospel. But he includes it here for the first time, and this is Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. And one thing I want us to see is that Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mother. We know that Jesus was the perfect man, he's the God-man, he did not sin, and so when we read this to, to 21st century listeners, it seems like referring to your mother as woman is a disrespectful thing. But I don't think that was the case in the first century. Uh, one of the commentators I was reading said it probably would be equivalent to some, somebody in the South calling their mother ma'am. So it's actually more of a respectful term. It's not necessarily disrespectful or dishonoring. But Jesus says, what does these people running out of wine have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so we're not exactly sure what Mary expected Jesus to do, but we're thinking that she expected him to do something to fix the situation. She expected something to be, to be done to correct the situation. But Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And what I want you to see is that I think what Jesus is doing is, is creating a little bit of separation between his mother and him. Because up to this point, you've got to remember that, that Jesus' mother is in authority over him. As Josh talked about this morning, parents are in authority over their children. Okay, So it would have been the same relationship with Jesus' mother and Jesus. Her and Joseph would have had authority over Jesus as he was growing up. They would have taught him things. They would have told him what he is allowed to do and what he is not allowed to do. But now, this is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is when he's going to start to do signs. Uh, typically, the first couple chapters of John is called the book of signs because there are seven signs that Jesus does. This is the first. And so we know that this is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And I think what Jesus is doing is creating some distance between his mother and himself for the sake of saying, I am obedient to no one but God the Father. Okay, listen to this, listen to this passage in Matthew chapter 12. 
Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. This is talking about Jesus. While he was still speaking to the people, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. He replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So now we see a situation where Jesus' family is actually present and someone says, hey, hey, Jesus, I know you're teaching and everything, but, but your mother and your brothers, they're asking for you. And Jesus says, who are, who are my mother and my brothers but you guys? Those who do the will of my Father. Listen to what John says a little, a little bit later in his Gospel. In chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And two chapters later, John chapter 6, verse 38 He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Jesus is clear that His obedience is to God the Father. And that no one, not even His earthly mother, had the authority to any longer tell Him what to do. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was going to be disrespectful or disobedient if his mother asked him to do something. We see that he clearly does act based on his mother's command or his, her uh, inquiry. But I, I think Jesus is establishing that he is obedient to no one but the Father. Not even his own mother no longer has authority over him. And I think this is applicable for, for you and I because oftentimes we tend to think that maybe we're a little bit closer to God based on who we know or who we're related to. Uh, I was talking to my brother about this uh, the other day, and I, and I hope he won't mind me sharing this. Uh, but, but my brother, we, we were both raised in a Christian home, and uh, you know, our parents brought us to church, and we did Sunday school, we did VBS and all these things. Uh, well, my brother and I both joined the Navy, and uh, both of us strayed away from the, from the church life for a while. Uh, and my brother found himself in a situation where he was just thinking, like, how in the world did I get myself here? Like, the lowest of lows. Like, this should have never happened to me. I grew up going to church. My parents are Christians. I, this is not who I am. And I think oftentimes we can tend to think that way as well. We can think, bad things can't really happen to me. Because I grew up being a Christian. My, my parents are good, solid Christians. I'm really good friends with the pastor. How can this happen to me? And I want us to see that it doesn't matter what kind of family tie you have. Even the mother of Jesus has no advantage in salvation for, than you and I. She's his mother. And I think Jesus creating some separation here is saying, not even my own mother has the advantage to tell me what I can do and when I'm going to glorify myself. Everyone must come to me in faith. Now, that gets spelled out a whole lot more throughout the rest of John's Gospel. But I think Jesus is establishing from the beginning that He is obedient to the Father and only the Father. My second point is that Jesus is the ultimate purifier. Look with me in verses 6 through 10. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. 
So they took it. Okay, now we've got to remember that we're reading a narrative. So this is John talking about a story as it happened. Now we believe that John is the unnamed disciple uh, in chapter 1 that is probably present at this uh, wedding with Jesus and the other disciples that he just called in chapter 1. So John is witnessing this, okay? So now Jesus is telling the servants, there's obviously servants who are helping, they're serving the meal, they're serving the drink and all these things. So they've run out of wine, and Jesus says, okay, servants, I want you to take these, these stone jars. Now John is also specific about what these jars were used for. They were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now these Jewish rites of purification jars had many different uses. It's most likely that the use here was that they were set up so that when guests would arrive, they could wash their hands, possibly even wash their feet uh, before eating and before enjoying uh, you know, a meal together. Uh, the, the Jews were very, very clean. They were cleanly people, and they even had a discussion uh, with Jesus about his disciples not washing their hands before they ate. So these were people that believed you had to wash yourself before you could eat. And so it's very likely that what these jars were being used for was guests to wash their hands. Okay, so think about that. If we just had, instead of us you know, using a sink with running water, if we just had a standing jar, and, and all of us, as we walked in the church tonight, we washed our hands in it, we don't know what everybody's been doing with their hands. Some of us have been changing oil. Some of us have been you know, digging a hole. Some of us have been sweating a whole lot. We don't know what's going on, okay? Would you want to take a drink of that water? I don't think any of us would want to take a drink of that water. That's pretty gross. So now we've got these jars for the Jewish rites of purification, but there's also another use for these jars. Now, to, to see the use, I want us to go to Numbers chapter 19. So if you uh, are familiar with the Old Testament, flip over to Numbers chapter 19, and I want to read a couple verses for you. So we're going to see another one of the uses for, this, for these jars. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood towards the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight... Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take the cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for water, for the water for impurity, for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And this shall be a perpetual state for the people of Israel and for the sojourner who sojourns among them. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. 
Okay, so, long passage, what's going on there? Basically, to be purified, to be clean, what you had to do was you had to take a red heifer, you had to give it to Eleazar the priest, so he would, he would uh, kill, the, kill the heifer, he would perform the sacrifice, and then what he would do is he would burn the heifer, everything about it, even its dung, which is gross, and then there would be someone who would gather up the ashes from burning the heifer. They would take that outside the camp, and it would be kept for what? For the water for impurity. So one of the things that these jars were used for is they would take the ashes of a red heifer that they had burned, they would mix it up with the water, and when you were in cl- you're unclean or impure, they would sprinkle you with this water. Sounds kind of gross. But that's another one of the uses for these jars of purification. So we don't know if the, if the jars had ever been used for that. Possibly. But it's pretty gross nonetheless, even if it is just something that we're all washing our hands in. Nobody wants to drink that. And so Jesus tells the servants to fill them up with water. So they fill them up. And then he says, now take these and bring it to the master of the feast. Now think about, think about being a servant at this wedding. Jesus' mother just told you to do whatever he asks. So you're thinking, okay, I don't really know a whole lot about Jesus. Maybe I know who he is. Maybe since, you know, if this, this is a close family wedding, we know Jesus a little bit. But we don't really know what he's going to do. And so Jesus says, I want you to take uh, the jars for purification. I want you to fill them up with water. Take some water out and bring it to the master of the feast. So, so there's tension here, okay? So the servants got to be thinking to themselves, uh, are we really going to give the master of the feast, the guy who's in charge of us, who could put us to death if we give him something nasty, are we really going to take some nasty hand-washing water and give it to him to drink because the wine ran out? This is probably what they're thinking. They're probably scared. What's going to happen to me if, if I give this guy some nasty water and he spits it back in my face? He's probably going to tell you know whoever to come kill me. So look what happens. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. What do we see Jesus doing with this nasty, filthy water. Jesus turns the gross, nasty water into the best wine at the feast. Normally, as, as we read here, it would have been the, the, the custom to bring the good wine out first. That way, when people you know, first start celebrating and they're drinking, they, they can taste it. They know that, oh yeah, this is very good wine. And then, once people get a little tipsy or a little inebriated, that's when you bring out the cheap stuff just as like a filler. Well, here's something for you to drink the rest of the time. You won't really know the difference. You're kind of out of it anyway. But the master of the feast says, you've kept the good wine until now. So I think there's multiple things happening here. And number one is that Jesus is showing that he is the ultimate purifier. Jesus takes something so dirty and so filthy and he turns it into the absolute best thing that they have at the feast. This is just the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But Jesus is showing us, and John recording this is showing his readers what Jesus is capable of doing. Jesus is capable of taking the dirtiest of the dirty 
in making it the absolute best and the cleanest of the clean. Isn't that exactly what happens when we believe in Jesus for salvation? We are an old creature that we are full of our sinful ways and that's the way that we're living and we're pursuing after our sin and we love our sins. And then we we hear the gospel message. We hear that Jesus died for our sins to make us right with God. And when we believe that at that very moment we are made right with God, we are clean. God now looks at us as He looks at at, at Jesus, His perfect Son, the perfect and spotless Lamb. I taught this to the, the, uh, the youth just this last Wednesday, and uh, Catherine Harden is in our youth group, and she just got baptized a couple of weeks ago, and so I used her as, the, as an example. I said, think about when we saw Catherine be baptized, right up here. When Catherine first walks down into the water, she is, is basically representing the old Catherine. This is the old cat that you all used to know and love, and you still do love her, but this is the old cat. The sinful, wicked, not believing in Jesus cat. And then as Josh dips her under the water, that's her saying that I have died to this old person. This old person that I used to be is no longer me. I died to that. But then as she comes back up out of the water, it's just as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that we are made into a new creation. That the old is no longer there. It's dead and it's gone, but behold, the new has come. Cat is now a new creation. God has recreated her to be clean, to be pure. That's what we see every time we witness a baptism. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. That's what I'm capable of doing. I'm capable of taking the dirtiest, wicked, most filthy sinners... And by believing in me, I can purify you just as I can purify this dirty, nasty water and make it great, awesome, delicious wine. Jesus is the ultimate purifier, but look at what else is happening here. Why does, why does John add in the detail that these jars that they're using are for the Jewish rites of purification? Because in the Old Testament law, what we just read, this is the way a person would be made purified. If you have sinned, if you have defiled yourself, if you have done something against the law of God, this is the way you're made right. Okay, you have to offer a red heifer, and, and they got to go through this whole process of burning the heifer, collecting the ashes, bringing it outside the camp, and then mixing it with the water for purification, and then sprinkling you. Long process. Look what Jesus is doing with that very symbol. The very symbol that Jews are going to look at and think, this is, this is the way I'm made right before God. This is the way I can atone for my sins, or this is the way God will be pleased with me, is if I do all of these things and I use these jars and I sprinkle myself with the water, Jesus is taking that old system, the thing that they would be looking at and thinking about the old way of being made pure, and Jesus says, it's no longer the ashes of a heifer or the sprinkling of purification water that makes you right. I am now the one. That makes you right. Jesus says, I am now the one who purifies you. Who turns you into a new creation. I think what Jesus is declaring here with changing water into wine is that there's a new covenant coming. The old covenant was good, right? Because there was a way that we could, I guess, appease God. Make Him less angry at us. It was through the sacrifice. The whole sacrificial system was set up 
Because we're sinful and we need to know that something must die in order to save us from our sins, to make us right with God. That's the whole point of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And that's a good thing. But the new, the new thing that's come, this new wine that has come later, is far better. Being purified by Jesus means we are purified for good. It's said in Numbers that this was the perpetual state for Israel. You had to do this every time you broke the law of God. But now we're purified once for good by believing in Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. This was the call to worship today. And you may have been wondering who picks this, who picks the call to worship. I did. And you may have been wondering, what, what in the world does that have to do with a wedding in Cana? So now listen to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of, of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who suffered the etern- through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The author of Hebrews is saying, if the ashes of a heifer... And, and, and you sacrificing a goat and a ram and a bull or whatever, if that makes you clean before God, just think about how clean you are before God once and for all by Jesus' sacrifice of His own blood. How much greater of a sacrifice is Jesus than all of the old system? Jesus is far superior. Which leads me to my last point. That is that Jesus is the greater bridegroom. So I, said, I mentioned at the beginning that it was the bridegroom's responsibility to make sure that there was food and drink at the wedding for everyone who was there. That was their, their job. Make sure that there's enough for all of your guests. Well, this bridegroom is clearly not prepared. Clearly he's come up short. And the fact that we see Jesus at a wedding at the beginning of his ministry, I think is foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing of another wedding that we're going to read about later in Scripture. Hasn't been written of yet at this point. But John knows that there's something greater coming. There's another wedding where Jesus will be the bridegroom and those who believe in Him will be the bride. And Jesus doesn't run out of wine. Listen to to the words of of Revelation chapter 19, verses 6-10. through Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship. But he said to me, You must not do that. 
I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There's coming another wedding where Jesus will be the bridegroom. And only those who are invited will be there to drink of his wine. So now, one final question is how do we get invited? Because the author, John, the same writer of of the Gospel of John, wrote Revelation. He says, only those who are invited will be there to participate. So how do we get invited? Look real quickly back at John. There's a thread that runs through this entire story. So at the beginning, it starts out with the mother of Jesus coming to him, saying, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Why does she come to Jesus and tell Him that they've run out of wine? It's not just a simple factual statement because then what she does is she goes to the servants and says, do whatever He tells you. Mary comes to Jesus because she believes in Him. She believes that Jesus will do something. She doesn't know what, but she believes that Jesus will do something to save them from embarrassment. She believes in Jesus. Notice also the servants. I kind of mentioned it. That they're kind of at the mercy of Jesus when they take this nasty hand wash water and bring it to the master of the feast. Their lives are possibly on the line if Jesus doesn't do something miraculous to make this water not nasty bath water. They believe that Jesus will do something. They don't know what. They don't know what's going to happen or how this is going to turn out, but they believe that Jesus is going to do something because they actually took the water to the master of the feast. They believed in Him. Look at verse 11. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. The thread running through this entire story is belief in Jesus. Mary knows who He is, doesn't know what He will do, but she believes in Him. The servants know who Jesus is. They don't know what He's going to do, but they believe in Him. And His disciples, they sit back and they watch Jesus knowing who He is. And after they see what He's done, they believe in Him. And I want to tell you tonight, the only way to get an invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb is to believe in Jesus. Those are going to be the only people who will sit at the table with Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who saves us from our sins and dine with Him, and enjoy the good wine, the good wine that never runs out. And if you have never believed in Jesus, then you're not invited. But Jesus wants you to come. Jesus is asking you, look at the things I've done. Look at what I can do. And believe in me. Believe that I can make your filthy, dirty, nasty life as pure as mine. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. He's asking us to believe. Don't you believe in Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great story that we read of Jesus at a wedding. It's even greater that there will come a day when, when all of us who believe 
will sit at his table as his bride. And he will never run out of wine. God, I pray that those of us who maybe have never believed in Jesus would do so tonight. And that by believing in his name, he gives us life. God, help us believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.